This podcast is a production of the Community Covenant Church in Eagle River, Alaska, a place where real people meet a real God to live in a real world. For more information, visit our website at www.communitycovenant.net. You might recall for several weeks we have been letting you know about a great workshop that took place actually yesterday called Veritas, and uh, Veritas meaning truth. And really what the workshop's about is us as a congregation taking a... What was that? <clears throat> Am I too close to that? Is that better? There you go. Us as a congregation uh, taking a look at our church and and just having an honest, truthful conversation about who we are, where we are, and where we're going, and the desire to get there with vitality. That's a wonderful thing. And ultimately, uh, to be a healthy, missional church. And John Wenrick, uh, from the Covenant Denomination, from the Department of Church Growth and Evangelism, was here yesterday and just did a great job in leading us through thinking about these things. And it was just so impactful. Now, if you missed it, John will be back in October. I believe it's the 18th Saturday for Epic. It's another workshop that follows up on the Veritas. And I know as you hear more and more about what happened yesterday, uh, you're going to want to be there in October. So I just kind of want to prime the pump a little bit. But it's great to have John here. Uh, John, we so much appreciate your ministry to us, to our church, your commitment to our church. Uh, to walk with us uh, on this vitality pathway as we become a healthy missional church. So, John, come on up and let's welcome John today. Thanks, man. Thank you. Well, good morning, everybody. I'm so happy to be here with you today. And yesterday was so special for me. You were working, I was working, but most importantly, God was working. Amen. And uh, I love your church, and I've been here a couple times, and it's good to see some familiar faces. And as your congregation walks this congregational vitality pathway over the next year or two, I want you to know that you're not alone. I'll be coaching your leaders through this experience. And our hope is that this church become a healthy missional church. And by healthy, we mean pursuing Christ. By missional, we mean pursuing Christ's priorities in the world. So yesterday we learned about 10 healthy missional markers. We learned about four types of churches, the healthy missional church, the stable church, the critical moment church, and the at-risk church. So this language will become more and more familiar to you as we walk this pathway of vitality so that we can totally be about our Father's business. As was said, my name is John Wenrick, and I serve as the Director of Congregational Vitality for the Evangelical Covenant Church, of which this church is part of our covenant denomination family, and we are in it together. And I wanted to stick around and preach today, again, because I, I so admire and enjoy being here, and I wanted to spend my Sunday with you. And I really enjoyed meeting some people from the Philadelphia area yesterday, too, because that's actually where I grew up. And speaking of family stuff, I want to introduce you to my family. Uh, this is Julie, and we've been married 28 years. Uh, this is at the Rose Bowl and one of the championship games there. And uh, 
Uh, Julie's a school teacher by trade, and I'm just so grateful for our marriage. Christ is the center of our marriage. And the Lord has blessed us with three sons. Uh, our f- oldest son is Jonathan, and this is his wife, Laura. They got married last August. And Jonathan is a pilot and a certified mechanic, went to Letourneau University in East Texas. Anybody ever hear of Letourneau? Yeah, so Jonathan has a lot of school loans to pay off, let's just say that. And Laura is now an instructional age. She's learning to become a teacher in junior high math. So that's in Portland. They met when they were 10 years old at First Covenant Youth Group, when I was the pastor at First Covenant. So I was a pastor for 21 years before being asked to serve in this role. And I've just got to tell you, God works in mysterious ways. Our second son is Joel, and he loves fishing. Go ahead. And uh, how's that for a bass? Uh, Joel is a junior at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon. Did you go there? Oh, really? Okay. Well, we ought to talk afterwards. Uh, Joel's a math and physics major, and he loves physics and loves fishing, plays guitar for the Fellowship of Christian Athletes worship band there on campus. And then our third son is Jordan. Jordan, look at that guy. He works out every day at the Y. You know, he's so into, Dad, am I getting stronger? You know, he always asks me these things. And uh, he's uh, just finished his freshman year at the University of Portland, and he's a business and finance major. Uh, played football. His team went to the state championships in Illinois, but lost. But it was really fun to be a part of all that. And then another member of our family is Jake. <laughs> he says hello. <laughs> he's our eight-year-old golden retriever, and he's a tremendous dog. And Jordy's going to be coming back home to Illinois, and they, like, sleep together on their bed, you know. And they're real. one of the best ways to bring back your kids is to have a dog. You know, we just read about that. So we're looking forward to that, to that reunion. <laughs> anyway, Jake says hello. So I'm grateful uh, for my family. I'm on the road a lot, and so everywhere I visit, I love to introduce people to my family. Uh, this morning, we're going to look at this topic of leadership because, as John Maxwell says, so much rises or falls on leadership. It takes a healthy missional pastor and pastoral staff to lead a healthy missional church, but it also takes a healthy missional lay leadership team to lead a healthy missional church. And instead of going like this, pastor and pastoral staff and congregational lay leaders need to come together like this because so much rises or falls on leadership. Folks, that's true for our government. It's true for a baseball team. It's true for a corporation. And it's true for a congregation. Almost everything rises or falls on leadership. Now, I'm using this definition by Bobby Clinton in his book, The Making of a Leader, to form the foundation of our conversation today. Go ahead, next slide. This is how Bobby Clinton defines leadership. Let's read it together. Ready? Leadership is the process by which a man or a woman influences a group of God's people to accomplish God's purposes for that group. That's our working definition. I know that there are many definitions of leadership floating out there, but this is one of my favorites. And let's just spend a few minutes unpacking this before we get into the scriptures. 
First, leadership is a process. Leadership doesn't happen overnight. It happens over time. It understands that there's some solutions that need to be made quickly, but there are other solutions that are made over time. It's a process. It's more organic than it is programmatic. Second, man or a woman. In the Covenant Church, we believe that both men and women are called and gifted for leadership. And we believe there's strong biblical support and evidence for that. And we celebrate both men and women being in leadership roles in the church. This next word, influences. If you were to ask me, John, what's the one word that you would use to describe leadership? And my answer would always be the same. Influence. Would you agree? Leadership is influence. And then I've been thinking recently about the relationship between title and influence. Some people have a title, and tragically, their influence is less than their title warrants. That is not a good situation to be in. And oftentimes, the leader doesn't realize that, but everyone else around the leader realizes that. You know what I'm saying? Other times, you have a title, and then you have influence that is commensurate or equal to your title. That's pretty good. But other times, people have a title, but their influence is greater than their actual title. And that, that is both beautiful and powerful when it comes to leadership. Jesus was like that. He didn't have many titles in the eyes of men, but he had tremendous influence in this world. Wouldn't you agree? So Jesus had more influence than his title warranted in a sense. Now, we know in a spiritual sense, his name is exalted above every name, so you get that. But I really want to encourage you to be the kind of leaders who have more influence than their title warrants. Influence. And then this word group. You know, some people say leadership is a lonely thing, and and I guess if you're wearing the mantle and the burden of leading a church or leading an organization or leading your family or a civic group. I mean, there is that burden. I mean, the buck stops here, right? But when you're going up to the mountaintop, the goal is not to get to the top of the mountain by yourself. The goal is to take other people with you so that they can see the beautiful panoramic vista with you. It's not about you. It's about the group that God has called you to lead and bringing them up to the mountaintop as well to see all that God is doing. And then this group is not an end in itself. It's a means to an end. It's about accomplishing God's purposes. So leadership is a process by which a man or a woman influences a group of God's people to accomplish God's purposes for that group. It's about what God, the Holy Spirit, wants to do in and through that group to share the gospel that flows from the warm and tender heart of God himself. So today I want to talk with you about two leadership lessons from the life of David. Now that we've established this foundation of the importance and significance of leaders, what this definition of leadership is, I want to share with you this morning two leadership lessons from the life of David. And this is critical because so much rises or falls on leadership. So go ahead and open your Bible and turn with me to Psalm 78, verses 72. And if you don't have a Bible today, we have it up on the screen. 
But the first insight comes from 70 and 71, and the second insight is going to flow out of verse 72. By the way, these are my favorite sections on leadership in the whole Old Testament, and they come out of the book of Psalms. He chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheep pens. From tending the sheep, he brought him to be the shepherd of his people, Jacob, of Israel, his inheritance. And when you have an inheritance, you're not going to put any schlock in charge of it. You're going to make sure you put a great leader in charge of your inheritance. And David shepherded them with integrity of heart. With skillful hands, he led them. So the first leadership insight flows out of that first set of verses, and here it is. God raises up ordinary people from ordinary places to do extraordinary things through the Holy Spirit. Would you say that with me? God raises up ordinary people from ordinary places to do extraordinary things through the Holy Spirit. Let me set the scene. So King Saul was the first king of Israel. And because his heart became hard and arrogant to the things of God, God regretted asking Saul to be the first king. His heart wasn't for God. So the eyes of God were looking throughout Israel to try to find a new king whose heart would be completely committed to the heart of God. And so he tells Samuel, the major great prophet in Samuel at that time, hey, I want you to go to the town of Bethlehem and visit the family of Jesse, and I'll show you which of his sons to anoint as the next king. So this is risky for Samuel, because if Saul finds out about this, it's (laughs) curtains for Samuel. But nevertheless, Samuel is a prophet, and he's faithful to say whatever God tells him to say. He is faithful to do whatever God tells him to do. So at risk to his own life, he goes to Bethlehem to visit the family of Jesse, And he's just trusting God that the Spirit will reveal to him the next king of Israel. And now we pick up the story. Ready? When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height. I mean, this guy stepped out of the front cover of GQ magazine. Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And this was the issue with Saul. He was tall and handsome, but his heart was hard to the things of God. So, next person. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. I mean, this is the lineup. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shema pass by, but Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? Now, I love that because Samuel is a man of faith. 
and we walk by faith and not by sight. And do you see what I'm saying here? He came all this way at great risk to himself, and he said, are these all the sons you have? Because he was walking by faith and not by sight. He was a great man of God. And then Jesse says, well, there's still the youngest, his dad answered, but he's tending the sheep. He wasn't even viewed as being significant to be in the initial lineup when Samuel said, bring all your sons. He's out in the fields tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit until he arrives. So he said and had him brought him in. And, you know, David was kind of good looking as well, but that wasn't the most important thing about him. The Bible said he was ruddy with a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. He is the one. And in this culture, for the youngest child to get this kind of anointing and blessing, just it doesn't fit with that particular culture where the oldest son was always like the most important one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord, the Holy Spirit, came upon David in power. God raises up ordinary people from ordinary places to do extraordinary things through the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's unpack this story for a moment. David was a nobody in a small and significant town. He was such a nobody, he wasn't even included in the initial lineup when Samuel came to town. And you know, the family of Jesse lives in Bethlehem, and it's kind of hard for us to realize this, because we know how famous and important and significant Bethlehem is in our salvation history. David isn't famous yet, and Jesus hadn't been born yet in Bethlehem, where the shepherds and the kings came to visit him, or the wise men, at Christmas time. So at this point in the history of the world, Bethlehem is very insignificant. Who would have thought that out of Bethlehem, God would have chosen the second king of Israel? David is a nobody in a small, insignificant town. He didn't even make the initial lineup, and no one except God himself considered David. But God noticed David's heart. And his willingness to obey. And that was so different than the first choice of King Saul. And all the while, unbeknownst to everything, out in the wilderness, with all the smelly sheep, God was forging a great leader in the wilderness. You know when the bear came to eat those sheep? David killed that bear. He learned fighting skills. When the lion came... He learned how to fight off the lion. And you know, it kind of gets boring out there in the wilderness. So he began to take that sling and a thousand times a day, can I hit that rock over there? And how about over there? Boom. A thousand times. You know, professional golfers, some of them hit 800 golf balls a day. So that they can do what needs to be done when it needs to be done in the manner in which it needs to be done. Have you read this book, um, David and Goliath? Have you read? It's actually a business book, and it says they did some study on David and Goliath, 
And Goliath was heavy infantry, and he told David to come here because he probably had bad eyesight. Did you know that when you study warfare back then, a slinger who was very accurate would always defeat the heavy infantry every single time? So here is young David practicing that sling. He could hurl that stone at an amazing speed and with deadly accuracy. But no one knows that in the wilderness, God is forging this leader. So when he comes to meet Goliath, he said, Hey, the Lord helped me fight the lion. The Lord helped me fight the bear. And this is in between the lines. But the Lord helped me develop this skill of really using this sling. It's not something mysterious. Because David was in training this whole time to meet someone like Goliath and defeat him. God was forging a nobody into a leader. And no one even knew what was going on. And he was a young teenager. Do you believe that God wants to use you in a significant way? Especially our young people here today. You're wondering, like, I got a heart for God. Would God ever use me to do something significant does God even know me my heart for him and I'm telling you he knows you he not only sees you but he sees into you and he's got an awesome plan for your life he wants to do something significant in your life he has not forgotten you he has not abandoned you He wants to do something great in and through your life. And I want you today to be inspired by the story of young David. No one even gave him a hope. But God was at work beyond what most people could notice. See, God uses ordinary people like young David from ordinary places, a no-name town like Bethlehem. To do extraordinary things through the power of the Holy Spirit. And that can be your story as well. Here's the next leadership insight from the life of David. Godly leadership is about heart and hand. Would you say that with me? Godly leadership is about heart and hand. Psalm 78, 72 says, And David shepherded them with integrity of heart. With skillful hands, he led them. How many of you like to play Pictionary? Anybody? So we're going to play some Pictionary in a way. But I want to draw you two pictures that I think really illustrate what's going on here. David shepherded his people, God's people, with integrity of heart. And he led them with skill of hand. David shepherded God's people with integrity of heart. And with skill of hand, he led them. I want to make a few comments about this picture. Heart is about character. The hand is about competence. The heart is about being. The hand is about 
doing. This is about integrity. This is about developing a skill set. David was a man after God's own heart who was willing to do whatever God told him to do. In his book, The Making of a Leader, Bobby Clinton says that sometime in a person's life, not this doesn't happen to every leader, but I want it to happen to me, and I want it to happen to you, that somewhere in the late 40s, somewhere in the 50s, that there is a convergence or a fusion between being and doing. And mature doing flows out of mature being. But some leaders never get there because of moral failure or they get distracted or they take their hand off the plow and veer off from the direction that God has for them. But I think I'd like to be like this. I'd like to taste this convergence, this great fusion between who I am here and what God wants to do in and through me. And I'm praying the same for you as well. Convergence fusion between being and doing. Does that make sense? And it's a seamless connection. Now, there are seasons of focus. In other words, sometimes in our life, God will have us in a season, and that season may last for a few years, where God is primarily focused on what he is doing in us, in this area of the heart. That's the major focus of that particular season in our life. But other seasons that God takes us through, his work, in, his work in us is primarily focused on what he wants to do through us. And that has to do with the hand. Some seasons in life are focused on what is God is doing in us. Other seasons in life, God is focusing on what he wants to do through us. So just by show of hands, I want to just want to see if you're connecting with me here. How many of you right now think you're in a season where God's primary work in you is about your heart. Go ahead, raise your hand. Awesome. Now, let's go to this side. How many of you think right now the Holy Spirit's major emphasis in your life is what God wants to do through you? Raise your hand. Good. At some point in all of our lives, I'm praying that there's this convergence or this fusion between being and doing. And I think that's the end point that God is bringing us to so that he can do his full work in and through us in this world. And this also requires spirit-empowered training. Uh, Let me just share some examples from my own life uh, in terms of being. I travel a lot. I did 130,000 miles last year. And when I get on a plane, I take out my Bible and I take out my journal and I start to memorize scripture. That's just kind of my pathway right now for the Lord. And it's been like that for a long time, ever since I went to vacation Bible school and earned points for memorizing verses for my team. Yeah, baby, and I'm super competitive. But I've just found out when I'm meditating and memorizing God's word, I'm not distracted. I'm not anxious. I'm totally focused on who God is and what he wants to do in and through my life. And I just start writing out my prayers. And every time I say, here's the date I'm flying from ORD to ANC, I say where I'm flying to. And then I always begin with the same sentence. Ready? It's like this. Abba, I belong to you. I got it out of one of Brendan Manning's book. Abba, I belong to you. Abba is the Hebrew word for father. Abba. Say that with me. Abba. 
See, I want to start with the being. And then I just start pouring out my heart to God, writing out those prayers. That's one of the ways you can train to give your total being and have God work in your heart. You know, um, you know Curtis Ivanoff? He's the superintendent of, you know, Alaska. And I took his family out to Red Robin last night. And then I took them over to the, Grand Plaza, the Crown Plaza to swim in their pool. And one of their kids says, are you rich, Mr. Wenrick? <laughs> I go, no, I'm not. <laughs> anyway, it was so funny. We had great shakes as well. Um, now, where was I going? Oh, yeah. So when I was, so when I saw Curtis, I believe in Curtis. And I just love this guy. And I said, hey, Curtis, how you doing? And then he said how he was doing. And then I pointed, I put my finger right into his chest. And I said, how are you doing here? And he mentioned that again at dinner last night, how much that meant to him. Because I just don't want to know how you're doing, but I want to know how you're being here. And I'll sometimes do that with people. How are you doing here? That's what I mean by training and being. Now, I don't know what you're going to think of me when I tell you this, but it's okay. Every month, I go see a Christian therapist to work on these issues of being. And I go and meet my Christian therapist, and you know what I do? I dump my stuff. And it feels so good to get a counselor. Proverbs says, some people have the gift of drawing out the inner thoughts of another person. And this is what I do. I go to my Christian counselor to dump my stuff. You know why that's so important for me? Because I've come to realize that I have a tendency to hold on to how people have hurt me in the past. I have a tendency to hold a grudge. So i got to go in once a month and dump all that stuff and get some perspective. How many of you have a tendency to hold on to the hurts and wounds of the past? Okay, thank you for being honest. And I need help with that so that when I go minister to other people, my being is clean. And I'm not preaching my stuff. I'm preaching Jesus Christ is crucified as Lord. Amen? Because I want my being to be like Jesus being, who said, I and the Father are one. And I want to know that close, intimate relationship with the Father. And, you know, I know there's shame associated with going to see a counselor, but that's okay, because for me, Jesus bore all my shame on the cross. Amen? So I don't even think about that stuff anymore. I just want to have all of my heart towards God's heart. So that's training and being. I wonder what you're doing in terms of, you're not trying, you're training. By the way, do you know the difference between trying and training? We don't try to be like Jesus. We train to be like Jesus. Paul said to Timothy, don't try to be godly. He said, train yourself to be godly. You don't try to play football. You train to play football. You don't try to play the sax. You train to play the sax. You know what I mean? Big difference. So I'm not talking about trying. I'm talking about training with God's help. In terms of doing, I love to read about leadership uh, in books right now. Right now I'm reading The Advantage, How Organizational Health Trumps Almost Everything by Patrick Lencioni. I was at Willow Creek two weeks ago, and I brought Leadership Summit DVDs from 2013 and 2011. And when I commute, I listen to those leaders. It's like a major injection of leadership into my veins before I go into Covenant offices in Chicago by the airport. So I'm constantly subjecting myself to learning, not just in the heart, but in terms of 
doing. Training in being and doing. Now, sometimes people have asked me, what's more important, character or competence? What would you say? Well, I would say this, that I think character and competence are equals, but character is the first among equals. You know, speaking of King David, you know what happened when his competence outstripped his character? In the spring, when all the other kings go out to war, David had reached a level of success, so he could delegate that to all his generals, and he just sat back, and that is when he noticed Bathsheba taking a bath on the roof of a nearby house. And then it went downhill from there. That's what happened when David's competence got ahead of his character. And in your own life and in my life, when we sense that our competence is getting ahead of our character, it's like the Holy Spirit taps us on the shoulder and says, be careful. Don't lower your competence, but raise your character so that it's slightly ahead above the competence. Does that make sense? Character and competence are equals, but character is the first among equals. Are you with me on this? Next slide. I love this because this gives me hope and grace. David messed up royally. I mean, it was awful. The second half of David's life was awful compared to all his great feats in the first half of his life. Finishing well is so important. But having said all of that, and we all know the story of his downfall, in the New Testament, David is still remembered in a positive light. And I get goosebumps because that's what grace does to me. This is what it says. After removing Saul, he made David their king. He testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. He's a man after my own heart, and he will do whatever I want him to do. And from this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior Jesus as he promised. Isn't that amazing? That even after all of David's sin, he is still remembered as the greatest leader in the Old Testament. And he's in the lineage of Jesus himself. And Jesus is called the son of David. Because Jesus himself had a heart for God. And he would do whatever God his Father would tell him to do as Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit. Friends, God loves us as we are, not as we should be. Because none of us is as we should be. And that is grace. That is vulgar grace. Because vulgar grace says, I'm going to pay you the same amount whether you showed up at 9 in the morning and worked hard for 10 hours to the drunk who shows up 10 minutes before 5. That's vulgar grace. And that vulgar grace, as Brendan Manning says, is piled high upon David's life. He's still remembered as a man after God's own heart who will do whatever God tells him to do. God raises up ordinary people from ordinary places to do extraordinary things through the Holy Spirit. And godly leadership is a fusion of heart 
and hand. Friends, every time I preach on the Old Testament, I always ask this question, why did Jesus die for these verses? What's the Jesus point? Well, here it is. Jesus, where did he spend most of his life? What's the name of the town? Nazareth. Jesus spent most, I mean, he was born in Bethlehem, but they quickly went to Egypt for a few years, and then they came back, and basically Jesus grew up in Nazareth, and he was a carpenter, and he came out into public ministry when he was about 30, but most of Jesus' life was spent in a carpenter shop in a no-name place called Nazareth. In fact, it was the armpit of Israel. It's like New Jersey in the United States. New Jersey is the armpit of the nation. This is the way Nazareth was. It was the armpit of Israel. And so much so that there was a saying, ready? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? God raises up ordinary people. This carpenter in a carpenter shop from ordinary places like Nazareth. To do extraordinary things through the power of the Holy Spirit. Wow. And godly leadership is about heart and hand. Jesus said things like, I and the Father are one. And if you study philosophy, this is ontology, the study of being. Jesus was one with the Father. How's that for being? How's that for having a heart for God? And then in terms of doing, he was so skilled. He said, I only do what I see my father doing. I only say what I hear my father saying. And he's full of the spirit when he's saying and living and doing all of these things. Jesus is the perfect fusion of being and doing. And I admire him so much that when I grow up, I want to be just like Heavenly Father, I praise you that you have always worked. You have always worked through ordinary people. From ordinary places to do extraordinary things through the power of your Holy Spirit. And I just ask you, Holy Spirit, right now to fall upon people here who are wondering if you'll ever do anything significant with the life that you gave me. And I pray, Father, that you would encourage them today and say, yes, I created you in my image. I redeemed you. You put your faith in me. I have a great plan and purpose for your life. I notice you. I'm training you. Don't give up. Have hope. And then, Father, I thank you for Jesus who had the seamless fusion of being and doing. Oh, God, I cry out that, like Jesus, we would have such a deep, intimate, authentic relationship with you. And as Jesus cried out and said, Abba, Father, so do we from a heart of longing and yearning. And Lord, help us to 
practice the things that you practice so that we can do what needs to be done in the manner in which it needs to be done when it needs to be done. Thank you, Jesus, that you are so full of joy and the Holy Spirit. We admire you so very much. Help us to live our lives as if you were living them for us. So that through this group here, with your power and blessing, we can accomplish your purposes for Eagle River and all over this world. This world for whom you, Jesus, died. Thank you, Father, for raising your Son from the dead. And thank you, Holy Spirit, for being here to mediate the presence of Jesus. And I pray that today is a new beginning. Thank you that you not only see us, but you see into us. And you've got a plan and purpose for each one. To do extraordinary things through your Holy Spirit. Thank you, God, for what you're doing here. For your love for this church and these people and this community. And I pray that the best days are still ahead because of what you want to do. In Jesus' name, amen.